Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 33 of The Pick List. Have you had a good week? Hello, Laura. Yes, a very good week. Thank you. Um, I hosted a webinar for The Grocer this week about grocery after 2020. It was all about how shopper behavior has changed. So a really interesting debate. Lots of changes to unpick, as you can imagine. What have you been up to? Uh, I've been a webinar delegate a lot this week, so not only have I watched your webinar, I've also watched the NFU conference this week, which was absolutely fascinating as usual to see uh, what folks were saying about food production over the next couple of years. Uh, This week's podcast is sponsored again, isn't it? It is indeed. It's sponsored by Shopper Intelligence. Shopper Intelligence is an industry database that puts the voice of shoppers back into category management with survey-driven metrics you don't get from other sources comparing across all supermarket fresh food and consumer goods categories. For more information, just go to shopperintelligence.com. Today's show, we've got a brilliant guest. Tell us about Manisha. Manisha is our guest this week. She's brilliant. Manisha Singh is Shopper Marketing Manager at Keypack. So she knows a lot about the meat industry, but because she has that Shopper Marketing role, she is super plugged into all things retail in general as well. So she keeps a very close eye on how shopper behavior has been changing and just proved a super interesting guest. Should we start the show? Manisha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. We're excited to have you. Um, why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners who you are and how you're connected to the food industry? Okie dokie. So um, I work for a company called Keypack. So we are one of the big red meat processors in Europe. Um, and my role is the shop marketing manager. So uh, in effect, I look after kind of our customer marketing, um, particularly for our branded proposition. Uh, and that's, you know, the Russ's brand, the Beast's brands. Um, and kind of my role is partly taking our branded plans and making them really relevant and impactful to our retailers. So spend a lot of time trying to understand retailer strategy, synergy, uh, opportunity. Uh, and then the other kind of part of my job is um, really trying to understand how the category is working when it comes to red meat, chilled convenience, burgers and buns and um, understanding how our kind of product and portfolio sits within that category and looking for opportunities to really deliver on our key kind of category matrix around you know, getting more shoppers in, getting shot more frequently. Um, so I work really closely with our category team as well and our customers to help land some of those initiatives. So that's me. Fantastic. Before we jump into your articles, um, I, I feel like I want to ask you a little bit about what you're seeing around shopper behavior at the moment, yeah. because shopper behavior has changed so much in, in, the, in the past 12 months. And as someone who keeps an eye on that very closely, can you just share some observations of what you're seeing in terms of key changes and what your expectations are in terms of, you know, are they going to be long term changes or perhaps only temporary? Yeah, so I think this is probably going to be the biggest shift we've ever seen 
to um, like the retail and shopping environment. The biggest piece is obviously the channel mix. So um, everyone's talking about the resurgence or or the kind of the big uh, value of online. So that is the platform everyone wants to be taking part of. So there's certainly some level of um, eyes on that prize of getting online right and winning in that channel. The other big thing that we're seeing is this um, kind of blurring of the lines between food service and retail. So uh, like these food delivered platforms, which are massive now, I mean, everyone's probably done something on delivery or just eat, uh, and they are bringing the grocery format onto their platform, again, to deliver on this kind of hyper convenient nature that we have as people. But at the same time, the traditional bricks and mortar stores are looking for this kind of food service proposition within their kind of retail space. And that isn't gonna go anywhere because you know, we, before the pandemic, we were shopping at seven or eight retailers across a month. Loyalty to that one retailer had kind of completely moving away. And now we've seen a reverse of that. Obviously, the pandemic with the message being, you know, shop essentially and do it in one trip. So people have really gone back to that one-stop shop offline mission in effect. And all the retailers are fighting for that one price basket spend. And to kind of bring them into the portfolio and, and get them in their estate, they need to have a point of difference against their competitors. And that's offering multiple needs, um, whether that's, you know, food service, as I said, or it's uh, destinations where you can get your hair cut, for example, things like that. So everything needs to be more than one-stop shop. The pick list, as you know, is, is all about highlighting and sharing interesting articles about food and drinks. So we do want to ask you a little bit about your reading habits how do you keep up to date with what's happening in the industry? What publications do you read on a regular basis? So I, I have a feeling you're going to ask me this. So I am a avid <laughs> grocer reader. I've got a pile this high and this high. Um, we were asked, you know, when we kind of moved to the home working sphere, did we just want to go to a digital only subscription? And I was like, no way. My hard copy grocer is a big part of my uh, reading por- portfolio. Sorry. Um, so I'm a big reader of that. And equally, we work um, with a number of kind of convenience-led retail titles in the work that I do. Um, And if you're going to work with these titles and you want them to have really engaging, relevant content, you have to read them. So I spend a lot of time kind of reading those titles. Um, I sound biased to William Reed right now, but I read the convenience store a lot. Um, So I I definitely have my trade mags. Um, I get a, a subscription to NAM News every day, which is fantastic because the kind of user interface is really easy. But equally, you're seeing global news there if you need to, European news, because we know our supply supply chains, no matter where you work in FMCG, are interdependent globally. So you've got to keep an eye on that. Um, We look a lot at, what's it, we? I look a lot at kind of food service trends as well, because one of those trends is how can I get my out-of-home experience in-home? So that's a big one. And then equally, I am... I'm a very kind of varied reader. I like to try lots of different things. So you'll see one of my articles today has just come from, um, it was at the kind of weekly email that I get from a fashion title. And I just think that's a great way to keep in um, kind of up to date with key insights and trends, because ultimately some of our consumers are going to be reading that. And if I know what they're reading and engaging with, then that's great. We can go back to our business and say, look, this is what, the national rhetoric and topic is. So a bit of everything, really. 
Fantastic. I like the sound of that. Now tell us about your first article for us. Okay, so it's, it's a NAM News one. Um, and it's about the um, commercial performance of home bargains. Over the last financial year, home bargains have been phenomenal double-digit growth. And the reason I really, really kind of uh, was engaged or like uh, this was an article that I kind of wanted to talk to you guys about is because it's full of insight that shows exactly where we are as shoppers today, but equally kind of flips it on its head as well. And I think kind of what I mean here is that this uh, is a store that if you read the article, you'll see is um, got a very aggressive expansion policy. So they want to double their store portfolio. And the reason that they think they can do that is not just because they do so well, but because they openly say there's a lot of empty retail space out there. You know, I think we can all agree that in the pandemic, issues with certain retailers have probably been heightened and they've unfortunately collapsed which has left a lot of empty space and out-of-home retail spaces on the high street. So for home bargains, it's a fantastic opportunity to sweep up some kind of retail spaces that don't come at a premium price. At the same time, keeping that kind of economic pressure in mind, I think a lot of their growth has probably come because of this perceived economic pressure on you know, our purses, penny pinching, uh, the, the kind of new media landscape is full of fact that we are returning to savvy shopping and consumer confidence is an all-time low. So what I think these guys have done here, and you know, we were chatting earlier about how much we love this kind of high street discount channel, is they're definitely appealing to shoppers who are looking for value, like their prices are synonymous. But now they've really stepped up that whole piece around you don't have to compromise on quality. This isn't a last minute resort, resort store. And in doing that, they've really become a universal kind of appealing retailer. Like one of my best friends, uh, he is um, he's a big shot in the music industry. He does loads of marketing for one of these, these music brands. And he's just got a fancy flat in uh, Canary Wharf and he lords it up at Soho House all the time. He's just um, started a bit of a home account. And he has decked this flat out in gear from home bargains with a sofa from made as well, because obviously he's loyal to his true nature. But for me, it just shows like this is a destination for good quality products that you want to show off. It's a, it's a great article you've picked and, uh, and a couple of observations. It's really interesting to see their growth and, and uh, as you've said, their expansion plans from 525 stores up to between 800 and 1,000 is phenomenal. And one of the things I was thinking of when, when I read it is the old uh, Hinch effect and how players like Mrs. Hinch, who's got now over 4 million followers on Instagram, has strategically aligned to players like Home Bargains, merchandising uh, with Home Bargains. And as you say, Manisha, HB being a cool place to go and, and love a little trip out to HB. And um, I suppose one of the other observations when you're chatting to some of the the, the food players, and I, I'm guessing key packs no different in this, that the, the, the likes of B&M, the likes of Home Bargains are becoming more and more important to food manufacturers. And particularly for a certain demographic, it is vital and convenience in particular, but uh, yeah, the, the selling a huge amount of produce and fr fresh is growing more and more. So it's interesting to get that balance right between yeah, items that Mrs. Hinge might be promoting as opposed to you can also buy your, your evening meal uh, in store. What do you see, Julia, from, from these channels? 
Yeah, I mean, what you just highlighted about the growing importance of food, that was exactly the question I was going to ask Manisha, because I'm, I think this is such an interesting channel. Um, and it's almost quite easy to sort of lose sight of the fact that actually a lot of these guys are really building up some credible food offerings as well. And, you know, Laura, as you said, you know, in, in not just ambient, but, but fresh and frozen um, at times as well. So, yeah, I was really interested to see what, what opportunities do you see for food, particularly from a meat perspective in these channels? Yeah, so I we again have this conversation a lot internally, and this is a channel that you definitely want to have a part in because ultimately their commitment to fresh is growing. Their kind of um, the, the kind of space and store that they allocate to food is always growing. And um, for us, and for me personally, the more they do on the quality piece, which they are doing, as we discussed, the more they're going to become a destination for food outside of just ambient. And that's where I think the real opportunity is because we are all kind of shopping on a budget, but we want the best possible products for that and we want the money to go as far as we can. Um, so for me, it's a, definitely an opportunity that's growing. It's got a very prized shopper group potentially as well. Um, and with that expansion program, they're going to become hyper-local. So you're going to get heavy footfall go into these stores just because they are in the vicinity to where you and I live. My personal opinion is watch this space because they are going to become legitimate food retailers in the future. Julia, what's your first pick this week? My first pick this week is from The Observer and it's an article by Harry Wallop titled Can a Gin-Free Cocktail Really Raise Our Spirits? Uh, this is a really interesting piece. It's about the no and low alcohol category, as you might expect from this uh, f from the headline. But it has some really fascinating parallels to the meat industry as well, which is why I was so um, interested to talk to you both about it. Um, so no and low is a category that continues to do very well. One of the standout stats in this article is that there are now 269 different no or low drinks stocked in supermarkets. And that's up from 170 four years ago. Um, of course, booze sales have also done well recently, particularly in lockdown. lockdown they're up 25% uh, year on year. But the article explains that a lot of this is down to displaced sales from pubs and bars, essentially. Um, and in fact, no and low grew by 38% over that same period. Um, they've got an interesting quote in here from Will Case, the buying manager uh, for beers and spirits at Sainsbury's. And he basically says that if any other category in the supermarkets had reported that kind of growth figure, you'd be doing cartwheels down the street. It's not just a flash in the pan either. It's a long-term significant growth story. And I think it's just always so interesting to hear uh, supermarket buyers really talk about how they look at these categories. I think a real indication that, uh, that players like Sainsbury's are, are really, really backing uh, the growth in no and low. A lot of this growth is now being driven by alternatives to spirits as opposed to wine and beer. And this is where Clean G comes in. Clean G is um, what they call a low alcohol botanical spirit uh, launched by uh, Spencer Matthews of Made in Chelsea fame. And Matthews and his business partner, one of the brands interviewed for this article, but there are loads of others as well. This is obviously um, a, a much, much wider trend. But again, this was so interesting to see how they describe their ambition, um, which is to invent the beyond meat for alcohol. 
which I thought was such an interesting reference. The comparison to Need Free, I think, is, is really appropriate on other levels as well. Because as with plant-based, where the growth is not coming from people going vegan, but it's coming from flexitarians, what the article explains is that the growth in no and low is not coming from people going teetotal, but it's coming from mainstream consumers who are simply looking to moderate their alcohol consumption. So I think that theme of you know, being flexitarians, moderating your consumption, I think that's just something that we're starting to see in a whole range of different uh, categories. Um, and I was so interested to get your take on this, Manisha, because, because of those parallels to what's happening with meat-free and plant-based as well. Do you see those same sort of dynamics apply? And are there any lessons from no and low and where the, um, the, the alcohol sector has responded to that that you think the meat sector could potentially learn from? Yeah, I, I love this article, Julia. I thought it was fantastic. Um, and the parallels are scary. Um, and I think the big thing that kind of came out to me was we have the flexitarian, obviously, in the, in the meat world. The alcohol world has the blenders, uh, which I thought was fantastic. And I think that's synonymous with a trend that we're seeing across the market, which is the emergence of a checks and balances shopper and consumer. So, um, you know, I'm going to be good X many days so I can do this. Um, and that is obviously universally kind of appearing in effect. And for me, I was, I was chatting to my boss today. She's, um, she's one of these people who you can just talk to about anything. And she'd seen an article on the Daily Mail about okay, what's your drinking persona. And the big one that keeps coming up is I'm going to be good Monday to Friday. But Saturday and Sunday, I'm going to have that blowout. And I might know a few of them as well. Um, so, so for me, I can completely see this being a long-term trend in effect in everything related to kind of grocery. Um, it's just a mindset for me that people are really, really in as they focus more on perceived well-being rather than pure health, if that makes sense. Laura, what's your first pick for us? My first pick this week is from The Independent, and it's been across quite a lot of titles this week, um, but I've, I've selected this one, and it's the uh, News of Witches' uh, latest supermarket survey, and uh, their supermarket of the year has been announced as Aldi. Um, and Aldi is the UK's top supermarket, according to the annual witch survey of 3,000 members of the public. Interesting, this survey was conducted back in October 2020, so relatively new and uh, in the midst of uh, of the pandemic and um, the, the article talks to the fact that customers were asked to rate their shopping experience including appearance layout quality of produce availability of online delivery slots and value for money and Aldi uh, was uh, head and shoulders above the rest receiving a five-star rating for value for money the only supermarket to achieve this in the survey um, the quote from uh, Harry Rose of which said many households have felt the pinch during the pandemic and value for money was more important factor when shopping in store in our annual supermarket survey, which explains Aldi coming out top, which I found quite interesting, really, because I think value for money, as we know, in every single consumer survey, it's pretty much there at the top. But, you know, with the with the optics changed and you know people as Manisha's already talked about people aren't shopping as many stores anymore and availability hygiene convenience and all that sort of stuff has equally been as important but it's interesting to see Aldi come out top 
the which have published two league tables an in-store supermarket um league table which is the one aldi have won interestingly mns was second on that followed by joint third of little tesco sorry uh, three and third and waitrose at bottom of the list interestingly um was co-op and i i think that was really fascinating for store appearance and quality of produce they only got two stars and then for value for money they only got one and i'm sure that the co-op team will be really disappointed with that and uh, and, and probably looking at that in a bit more detail as, as i know all the supermarkets do spend a huge amount of time making sure that their their mpd around their products and, and their, their stores are, are ex- ex- exceptionally strong the second league table was online supermarket results, which probably even interested me even more to see, as we've already talked about, the swing into online and how many more people are using that channel and who came out top. Interestingly, Sainsbury's uh, came out top for, for online. And the, the joint second position, I think, was the, the, the juiciest in this whole story. Joint second was uh, Amazon Fresh. Uh, and uh, Iceland. Iceland have had some challenging press over the, the last couple of weeks in particular will be very pleased with this I'm sure and, and, and pushing it hard. Bottom of the list uh, in terms of online was Asda and I, I suppose I've got one of the reasons for picking this I guess for how much does it matter I guess within the trade it matters a huge amount and CEOs of these retailers will be poring over this and and, uh, and it's interesting how, how hard which have actually pushed this press release and you just need to Google and it's pretty much across all the, the regional uh, titles. But how much do you think it drives consumer trends? You know, folks reading this and thinking, oh, well, I can get a better online availability slot at Sainsbury's than I maybe can at Waitrose or at Ocado, which I think is really interesting to have Ocado in fifth place on online when we touched on that last week and Mel Smith's uh, conversation at the City Food Lecture. But I guess, my book, how much does this matter? Manisha, what are your thoughts? And you're super close to the retailers. Will they be really bothered by these results? Or will they be thinking, well, you know, it's like the grocer 33. There's another round of it next week or next year. And and it's only a sample of 3,000. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that no matter what insight comes out, retailers look at it and they'll probably want to improve on it. Like if there's anywhere that they see a... Uh, let's call it a lightness, they'll be talking to, you know, their team suppliers, being like, how can we improve on this? So I, you know, they'll, they'll be looking at everything, don't get me wrong. And what you're reading one, you'll probably see the converse in another sometimes. So it's it's a part of a jigsaw, but I'm sure it'll be part of the rhetoric. But for me, what I took out of this was how reflective it is of consumer kind of behaviour. So you've already said, Laura, it's price is king and Every category will tell you in their purchase hierarchy, price probably top. But um, the fact that, you know, this came out, Aldi Energy came out of that last recession in 2008. And when they started, whilst everyone kind of acknowledged they were good value retailers, there was this whole piece from, well, you know, they're compared to shopping on the continent. Um, the range isn't great. So Aldi in particular worked really hard to, um, you know, normalise their position in that in that portfolio, sponsoring Team GB, heavy marketing investment into provenance stories that are kind of really local. So they've nailed price in effect. And I think that people feel comfortable to give them their money because they also are really working on that quality piece as well, which I think they do really well and might not come out as much in this witch survey, but 
you can see that's kind of why their success has kind of come to fruition, if that makes sense. The thing that really intrigues me, though, is um, the gap between shopper intention and shopper perceptions here, which are really positive about Aldi, and actual grocery performance. Because if you look at the latest Kantar data, you're not looking at that thinking, oh, well, Aldi is the big winner here, far from it. So that's, that's the bit that really intrigues me. Are we seeing shoppers... Uh, starting to become more value-minded, talking about um, wanting to to really prioritise retailers that they're seeing as as value-focused, and in the coming months, as you know, the uh, sort of economic climate might get tougher, we might see Aldi actually start performing more strongly again. Yeah. Certainly, based on current evidence, you would look at that and you'd say, well, they're not even the strongest performing discounter in this channel. So that, for me, is the disconnect. Yeah, I think, though, you've got to look at where retail's going and everyone is fighting for that Aldi space. So Tesco, Aldi price match, Sainsbury's have brought it in as well. On top of that, all these loyalty led promotions, you know, cover club card, get this. Co-op have got a similar proposition now as well. So, yeah, it might be in Kantar that we're not seeing the the actual translation the threat that these guys still pose is huge. And the fact that shoppers are saying they're shopping there because of the price shows that the, the ability to win their share of wallet is really, really quite high. Manisha, tell us about your second pick for us. Uh, so I've gone a little bit rogue with my <laughs> third pick, but I have a mentor. She always says to me, to influence and persuade, you have to be really authentic. So this is me being authentic. And I picked my um, article from Glamour magazine. And not one, as I said, you might not immediately assume it's like FMCG, Heartland. But for me, this article um, is very, very, very indicative of what's happening in the grocery market. So the article is all about um, the spring fashion season is coming in effect, spring 2021. And now we all know that we'll be out and about for part of that with the out having to wear kind of the athleisure that we're probably all a little bit guilty of or you know those Kim Kardashian famous joggers so um how are we going to capitalize on trends and what this article says is people are going to find these kind of trendy outfits not in the kind of high street heavyweights of Zara but from Sainsbury's and Tesco and they are in the article matched to Sainsbury's and Tesco Zara and the likes of Monkey and for me what I think this really, really showed was that these high street, not high street, sorry, these supermarkets have evolved, as I said earlier, in terms of trends, they're offering to deliver for more missions and more needs. And getting fashion right is a big one. I, I love the fact we've got a glamour article on the show, first time, <laughs> episode 33, we've got there. So I was excited that you brought that. And uh, when I read it, there was a couple of things in there for me. And interestingly, just this weekend, I was in um, my local Sainsbury's, which has gone through a full restore, a uh, new store refit, including some real heavy merchandising in the clothing department. As you've said, Mish, sometimes it, this was just an afterthought. It's really interesting to see what the retailers are doing in this space. And it's perfect timing, isn't it, when high street retail is closed 
and and they're, they're the only tangible players in the market really for clothes and how much I actually enjoyed for 10 minutes just browsing the clothes yeah. and thinking god is this what it used to be like and just getting that little bit of tangibility and retail buzz rather than just uh, getting the DPD man at the door every 10 minutes <laughs> with boxes I've, I've randomly ordered so I think there's a, there's definitely a merchandising experience piece that the the retailers are, are playing with and understanding more that they've got a huge opportunity now and I think as you say playing this accessibility piece and the accessibility through as you say adding on to your weekly shop but also the accessibility through media channels and showing that this isn't just something for your your housewife in the 60s where it maybe used to be pitched 20 years ago this is younger demographics on tiktok looking at funky clothing that is as the article describes exactly the same as a product in zara or mango julia what's your second pick this week my second pick this week is from The Economist, and it's an article titled Duty-Free Retail is Finding New Ways to Grow. This caught my eye because with the new roadmap out of lockdown announced earlier this week, it feels at least possible to think about international travel again, which is very exciting. Um, but of course, the travel retail sector has had a nightmarish uh, 12 months. Duty-free sales collapsed by two-thirds last year, and now that restrictions are starting to lift in more and more parts of the world, the pressure, of course, is on that sector to bounce back and also to take a fresh look at retail concepts and make sure they are relevant post-COVID. And what I thought was interesting here is one of the conclusions many operators in that sector seem to be reaching is that alcohol and cigarettes are going to play a less important role in the future in that sector. The focus will be much more on luxury goods and wealthy travellers. Um, and the other key change in the world of duty-free shopping, which was something that wasn't on my radar, which I, I think is fascinating, is that it's moving away from airports. Airports will still be an obvious location for duty-free retail, of course, but operators are keen to diversify to other locations. We're really talking about tax-exempt outlets in tourists' hotspots primarily, which is a concept that's already popular in Asia um, and is starting to pull some duty-free sales volumes away from airports. So it's a really fascinating time for that sector. And of course, the implications of some of these changes are potentially very significant for some big brand owners in the grocery sector as well. Beyond alcohol, not only are you facing growing competition from the low and no trend that we talked about earlier, but you're also now looking at potentially a very different travel retail sector in the future. Although, we should say, as the article makes very clear at the end, bored travellers for waiting for flights will always make for a pretty good audience to sell to. So for the right brands and the right retail concepts, there will still be plenty of opportunities around duty-free. But uh, yeah, a sector that seems to be uh, changing very, very quickly. And we're always so focused on grocery retail. I think sometimes it's really important to kind of look at uh, some some other retail concepts as well. Manisha, what, what did you make of it? Um, well, I learned a lot, that's for sure, Julia. Particularly, uh, what always astounds me is the Communist Party of China and the oxymoronic use of free market capitalism. But uh, that's another kind of subject for a different podcast, a different day. Um, but for me, I think the big thing is that what is really, really obvious in duty-free shop right now is about product placement. So these guys know what shoppers they want, and they've identified exactly where they are. 
So they've refined their offering, their range to make sure that that's happening. And that's why these luxury retailers are picking up, as they say, wealthy travellers. Because ultimately, these kind of retailers that are called out within the article are luxury retailers found in long haul terminals. Not often do you find it in, you know, the short haul terminals. And people are going long haul, uh, as it says in the article, wealthy business people or people with a lot of domestic income to go on long haul holidays. So they are where the money is in effect, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I think the other one for me is you just talked about, you know, there will be a market for um, you know, people looking for last minute kind of um, toiletries or whatever it is. And that is basic supply and demand, isn't it? Because they there is no other alternative there. So if you are traveling Ryanair, like I often do, and you've got 100 mil max that you can take, I'll tell you what, I'll keep that for my very expensive mascara and I'll buy my suntan lotion at the duty free. So we I would say we can't ignore the role of, the they call it like the desperate shopper in effect. And I call it the shopper who's got limited opportunity to bring another thing. I think it was a fascinating article. I agree, and it's a channel I very rarely think of. And it, it's one of those where, when uh, speaking from just personal experience, I don't know how, how you two operate, but all of a sudden it feels like monopoly money when you're in duty-free and you think, <laughs> oh, well, yeah, um, of course I'm going to buy those sunglasses because I'm on holiday. So it, it, I, I think it probably does stimulate in consumers a, a different psyche that, yeah, you would make a buying decision that you wouldn't normally um, and also, I guess the the secondary impact of that channel being decimated, as the article says, that the, the lack of uh, of um, air travel is, I guess, some of the feeders into it. The luxury market and the hide and skins market, particularly in the in the livestock industry for the beef market. I was just chatting to some contacts this afternoon, just saying, you know, really struggling that the in the US actually on hide and skins for this very reason that the luxury handbag market has pretty much stopped for a year so it's just really interesting that we think about the retail channel itself what we're buying and then the, the backlog of what, what it creates for further down the track for some primary producers Laura what's your second pick for us my second pick this week is from the Sunday Times and it was very sad news for me on Sunday morning. I'm not going to lie, I knew it was coming, but to, to see it in the Sunday Times upset me. As I, as I make no uh, uh, apology for, I don't hide it very well on the show, I'm a bit of a John Lewis fan. So the news is John Lewis to close more stores and this is off the back of um, uh, the fact that they closed some stores last year. They closed eight and they made... Um, uh, almost 3,000 people redundant uh, across both head office and uh, some of the stores, including one of their uh, huge anchor stores uh, in the Bull Ring in Birmingham. Um, they have currently have 42 stores and they're, they're looking to, to cut that down by another eight. And it's really interesting that in the article they're talking about some of those stores may close, but they may re relocate them to smaller properties nearby. Um, and it all automatically gets my, my mind ticking on, I wonder who the winners and losers are going to be in those categories. Who's going to make the cut into a smaller store? And actually, where are the areas that aren't going to feature going, going forwards? And um, it'll be very interesting to see. The, one of the other uh, comments in the article talks, and this absolutely blew me away, by 2025, which by my maths is four years away, um, uh, John Lewis expects between 60 and 70% of its sales to be made online. 
and the cost of running all of those huge stores, why would you need it if, uh, if uh, uh, two-thirds of your re retailing is online? And the article also goes into uh, the fact that I've got so much high street um, capacity now with the collapse of Debenhams and the Arcadia Group leaving over 600 empty st uh, stores across uh, the country. Um, and it also then goes into talk about the reform of business rates. Uh, and that's going to be um, delayed until the autumn to see what that actually looks like going forwards. And uh, Rishi Sunak's announcement next week as part of the budget will be really interesting to see if there's an extension on rate relief, which we alluded to on, on last week's show. I, I The other thing that really interests me, and I'm keen to get your um, insight on this, is when and there's, a, there's an article about John Lewis over the last 18 months or so, it talks quite a bit about um, the CEO, uh, Sharon White, uh, who's uh, come in from Ofcom and, and um, the article calls her out here as a left field appointment and I don't know if it's because she hasn't come from a retail background but I always feel as an underlying um, I don't know feeling that she, she's not a retailer um, in her DNA and it's maybe because she's had to make some really tough decisions Tough decisions, including um, no um, bonus for uh, their 80,000 partners. That's the first time since 1953. Obviously, the closure of stores. But the article also goes on to talk about um, her predecessor, Charlie uh, Mayfield. He had an internal review before he left to say that 20 stores would need to be uh, closed to make it economically viable. Um, and then it obviously uh, goes on to mention the, the link with Waitrose and the fact that, that, that John Lewis um, owns the Waitrose uh, partnership and actually is expected to make a full um, year profit in the year ahead uh, against previous guidance of a small loss or a, uh, or a small profit. What are your thoughts, Manisha, on John Lewis? You know I'm a fan. I don't hide <laughs> it well. I really had seen this popping up like you and I refused to open it because... The day I read that they were shutting down all the uh, top shops in the Arcadia portfolio, it broke my heart. I was a bit like, I don't care when the shop's open now, my favourites are gone. Um, but this is just another blow for the high street. And I think for department stores, as kind of demonstrated by Debenhams, they haven't really worked out what their role is on that high street anymore. And it stands in direct contrast to the article we talked about about Home Bargains earlier, where they're going on an aggressive kind of expansion programme. So I think the offering within these stores which carry many categories skews mass market appeal are probably going to have to go back and rethink okay well who is our prize shopper and what do they really want and you know utilizing online insight will really help with that i imagine so i, I can see like maybe going back to the drawing board uh, the piece around their ceo sharon white i I think no matter who had gone into that role would have got a bit of flack, purely because of the nature of the business. As you said, it's a partnership business. You know, they're famous for the fact that, you know, you're buying into the company as an employee. So anything that you do to, you know, take away from that is probably going to attract some level of attention. The, the bit that really interested me um, about about this this article was actually um, some of what you talked about, Manisha, right at the start, which is that sense of um, retailers, particularly I think some of these big high street stores, needing to think about providing an experience and providing a reason for people to go into stores. And 
there were obviously lots of um, lots of department stores, lots of big retailers that were already exploring their options on that, and you couldn't have asked for a worse uh, time it for worse timing on this. Obviously, with COVID, where you know just as you're trying to kind of think about experiential retail, you know, here comes a pandemic that makes um, all of that pretty much impossible. But um, we, we've talked quite a bit about Harrods, for instance, as well, sort of really exploring some of those concepts. So. I would hope that once they have cut um, whatever stores are, are need to be cut, that actually once we're out of the pandemic and we have a slightly more normal high street environment, that some of those experiments and that willingness to really play with experiential retail is going to come back. Um, because I think there are still great opportunities around that. And, you know, John Lewis is... Uh, an incredibly well-loved brand. There's a lot of goodwill still out there. And I think, you know, they still have that that reputation for, for quality and they have a reputation for service and they obviously have waitress as part of that portfolio as well. So, you know, all of the trends that you talked about in terms of having, you know, retail meets food service and just generally uh, providing a, a sort of broader experience for a range of shopping regions, you would think, on paper at least, um, John Lewis in combination with waitress should be pretty well positioned for that. So, um, yes, I... It's always just so sad when you read about um, you know, any any of these stores closing and any of, of the chains having having a tough time. But um, I still I'm still hopeful, uh, and I think particularly around experiential retail, um, if you have that that trusted brand, there should be opportunities for you, even if it's ultimately across a, a slightly smaller store estate. Manisha, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've had such a great time. Fashion, retail, food, gin. What's not to love about a session on the pit list? Thank you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.